Welcome to Bar Fights with attorney and advocate Sarah Klein. Taking on issues that matter and advocating for legal, cultural, and political change everywhere in order to protect children and vulnerable adults. Joining the conversation are survivors, advocates, lawyers, media personalities, athletes, celebrities, authors, wellness aficionados, and many more. Because bringing real justice takes a team of experts who care. Now, leading the fight is your host, Sarah Klein. Hey, you guys, welcome back to Bar Fights. I am so freaking excited for you to hear from today's guest. I meet a lot of badasses in my work, but this woman is incredible. And I can't wait for all of us to learn from her and to have some very, very compelling conversations today. Her name is Yasmin Vafa, and she is a human rights lawyer. She's a co-founder and executive director of Rights for Girls. Um, She's been everywhere. You maybe saw her op-ed in the Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, um, New York Times, NPR recently. And She is currently serving on the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services National Advisory Committee on the Sex Trafficking of Children and Youth. And what we're going to talk about today is decriminalizing sex workers. It's a hot button topic. You've probably seen it in the news. Laws are potentially changing in different states on this issue. And it's it's really, really a multi-layered issue where... You might think you have an opinion on it right now, but your opinion might change by the end of this conversation today. So welcome to Bar Fights, wonderful superwoman. Can you start by just educating us in general about this industry of sex trafficking? Well, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to meet you. Um, Absolutely. I mean, I think this is a really complex issue because even though I think we're used to hearing about the ways in which sex trafficking and prostitution are legally distinct, and they absolutely are, there's really important ways in which these two issues are actually interconnected. Um, One important thing to realize is that most of the adults in the sex industry today first entered the sex trade when they were kids. Um, so, you know, what we often say is that they were the child sex trafficking victims of yesterday. Um, so, you know, what happens when those kids turn 18? You know, does it automatically become an empowered career choice? Um, or do a lot of those same vulnerabilities exist? Um, you know, another important thing to consider is that the individuals who are soliciting um them for sex, you know, so the sex buyers, they often can't meaningfully discern whether the people they're soliciting are there by choice or not. So that's another important thing to consider. Uh, And finally, the other way these two issues are connected is that the policies and laws governing one issue inevitably impact the other. And so it's important to understand that they might be legally distinct, but there's really critical ways that these two issues actually impact each other. And so um, that's really important to kind of understand when we think of all of the policies that govern sex trafficking and prostitution across the country, uh, especially 
especially right now, as I think more and more people are realizing that the status quo is really not working um, across this country. We have what's known as a full prohibitionist scheme where all aspects of the sex trade are criminalized, the purchase, the sale pimping, third-party facilitation, brothels. I think people are realizing that, you know, it's really done nothing to help people out of the sex trade. It's done nothing to reduce prostitution Um, and criminalizing, you know, the women in prostitution really sometimes keeps them trapped in the industry. Those criminal records really impede their ability to exit. And so, People have been looking to reform, and I think it's long overdue to reform the laws. The problem is uh, there's two competing approaches. Um, One, I think, dominant um, approach is known as full decriminalization. Uh, People often discuss this as decriminalizing sex work. Um, And then the other competing approach is partial decriminalization um, and sometimes known as the equality model or the Swedish model, you know, it's dubbed different things. Um, So all across this country, we're seeing laws being introduced and, and policies being introduced to reform the sex trade. And I think that's really commendable. Um, but I think what I'm hoping we can talk about today is what these policies actually do, because I think there's a lot of confusion, um, sometimes purposeful and sometimes I think, um, you know, just just misguided. I think a lot of people truly just don't know. Um, in the last few years, we've seen states like New York, Vermont, Oregon, Louisiana, D.C., um, Rhode Island, uh, Maine, Massachusetts, a ton of states basically introduce legislation to reform their policies. And most of those have sought to decriminalize sex work or fully decriminalize the industry. And what that means is not only would they decriminalize, quote unquote, sex workers, but they would also decriminalize pimping, sex buying, and brothels. Um, And the concern there is that the combination of those factors would greatly expand the sex industry and it would increase sex trafficking. Uh, And the reason that is, is because the demand for commercial sex is already incredibly high. Um, And what I mean by that is that Everywhere, basically, in this country, except for a handful of counties in Nevada, it's illegal to buy sex. Uh, But despite that, there's still plenty of men that are perfectly content to break the law in order to buy sex that the demand for commercial sex already outpaces the supply, meaning that there's just not enough willing participants to provide that service that we have to basically um, rely on sex trafficking. That means traffickers are basically luring, coercing, and manipulating people to fill that gap. So sex trafficking exists because the demand for commercial sex already outpaces the supply. If we were to enact these laws that repeal prohibitions against sex buying, we would be signaling to society that sex buying is socially acceptable behavior. And as a result, more men would then enter the market as new clients. And that would spike the demand up even higher. And I think we have to ask ourselves, who would be, you know, making up that gap? Would it be, you know, women with PhDs? Obviously not. You know, I think it would be very clear that it would be people from marginalized communities. And most often, based on what we see in our work, it's oftentimes young people, 
you know, disproportionately young women and youth of color, LGBTQ youth, uh, runaway and homeless youth. Um, you know, the, the reality is these are people who are easier to lure and recruit. Um, these are kids who fall through the cracks and traffickers know that they are often um, children who won't be missed, won't be found, people won't be looking for. And that is often who is going to be targeted in order to fill that gap. Uh, and so it's really important to realize that these laws will, in fact, increase sex trafficking. We don't have to speculate. We know from other jurisdictions that have done this, um, places like the Netherlands, places like Germany that has 1.2 million sex buyers per day. Um, you know, there's oh, like 400,000 women in prostitution in Germany. They're not German women, right? They're disproportionately trafficked women, migrant women. And so it's very important to realize what the consequences of these policies would be and who would bear the brunt of these policies in our communities. So, you know, I think that's really important. A lot of people don't realize they think these laws would just impact and, and benefit sex workers. And, and that's just not true. So that's something that we're really trying to educate, um, you know, the population about and and really try to say you know, if this is what we want to do, and, and if we want to protect the most marginalized people in the sex trade, there is a better way forward. There is a, a proven way forward that actually protects the most vulnerable people in the sex trade, decriminalizes them, offers them support and services, including exit services, clears their criminal records, um, provides them that criminal record relief, but maintains the prohibitions against, you know, purchasing, pimping, and brothels, which keeps the industry in check. Uh, and that is that partial decriminalization approach. Um, you know, to give an example, Sweden was the first country to enact that model um, around the same time that Germany and the Netherlands enacted their model. And by contrast, you know, in Sweden, it's basically a dead zone for human trafficking. The demand for prostitution is so low that traffickers don't even bother going there. Um, you know, that's not to say prostitution doesn't exist. It's just so minimal uh, as compared to the Netherlands, which, you know, just this week, it was all over the news that they've launched a multi-million dollar national campaign to discourage bachelor parties and stag parties from going to the red light district because it's become such a problem. Trafficking, organized crime have become such a problem. Um, and, you know, culturally speaking, objectification of women, gender violence, uh, human trafficking, they've had incredible difficulty in both of those countries prosecuting traffickers. Uh, the line between pimps and managers, quote unquote, becomes incredibly blurry. Uh, and when you look at the numbers of murdered women in prostitution, in Sweden, there's been zero prostituted women killed uh, in the sex trade. There was one woman who was killed as part of a domestic violence dispute, whereas in Germany and the Netherlands, there's been dozens of women in prostitution killed in the brothels. Uh, and so, again, it, it's really important to realize that legalization, full decriminalization do not do anything to make the industry safer. Uh, in fact, you know, in Germany, they have these 12-story brothels in places like Cologne, um, they're not allowed to have pillows in the brothels because they're worried about buyers basically suffocating the women. 
Um, so, you know, there's nothing to make these places safe. If anything, they encourage and embolden uh, the behavior of these exploiters. And so uh, something really important to think about, is that the type of society we want uh, here? Or do we want a society that minimizes and shrinks the number of people involved? Absolutely. Wow. that That is fascinating, scary, sad, eye-opening, all the things. You wrote an incredible op-ed that people should definitely search out in the Washington Post called There's a Way to Decriminalize Prostitution Without Putting Women at Risk. And I think you just described that so well. And there's a quote in here um, where I sort of stopped dead in my tracks. Um, You were talking about children and you said the sex trade is dependent on children. Exploiters know that once they lure a child into the sex industry, the child is likely to remain trapped there into adulthood. And that makes perfect sense. And then you contrast that with sort of the, the, you know, devil's advocate with these conversations saying, my body, my choice, I want to do this. I'm empowered by doing this. But when you put it in that context, of that child started in the pipeline, you know, before they even maybe knew how to tie their shoes and that's all they know. And, you know, that's what they're around their whole lives. Um, They themselves might even think that what they're doing is, is great and empowering, but taking a step back, we're like, whoa, Um, you compared it to, I love this analogy to the tobacco industry, targeting children to secure lifelong customers. Tell me a little bit more about that analogy. It makes such good sense. Yeah. I mean, people often forget these are multi-billion dollar industries, right? They are sophisticated and they are um, in many cases ruthless. They are, they know exactly what they're doing. They are targeting these young people uh, in, in the case of, you know, the sex trade. These are multi-billion dollar industry that is on the verge and committed to becoming legitimate. Um, so they are invested in becoming legalized, right, and and um, decriminalized. And so they are targeting young people. They know there's a demand for younger and younger girls. Um, and that is exactly what we're hearing from survivors on the ground. And that is exactly what we're seeing when you go to these review boards, which uh, if your listeners don't know, it's basically like Yelp for prostitution, where sex buyers go on these sites and they review their experiences with the individuals they've bought. And they describe, oftentimes they know that the the people they have purchased are likely underage. Uh, they talk about, you know, how they might not be there of their own volition. Um, they talk about the violence, you know, the, the bruises on them. And, you know, it's very clear that these are people who are coerced or might not be in the best conditions, right? And and a normal person should be able to deduce that this is not a good situation. Um, but yeah, I, I think that it's clear that often they're seeking young, young women, young people. Um, and, 
you know, I think that these industries really do. They they really target and prey on that vulnerability. And this is an industry that preys on vulnerability and marginalization. And so, you know, uh, individuals who are marginalized by age, gender, race, ethnicity, um, you know, immigration status, disability, they are all particularly susceptible to being exploited by this industry. And so, you know, these are, again, youth who... Um, find themselves uh, particularly vulnerable to being um, caught up and traffickers know to target them. And in some cases, you know, as one survivor said, there's not always a trafficker, but there's always a buyer. You know, I'm thinking of uh, the runaway and homeless youth or, you know, kids who are maybe trans or LGBTQ who are kicked out of their homes and who are on the streets who basically have to trade sex in order to support themselves or have a place to sleep or to have food. And instead of, you know, providing them that type of support, there's an adult willing to exploit them, you know, and, and basically exchange sex in order to provide those supports. And, you know, that, that often happens as well. And so there's not always a trafficker or a third party exploiting these young people, but there's always an adult willing to take advantage of them. Oh, and I saw a statistic on the rightsforgirls.org website that says one in six girls were younger than 12 when they were first trafficked. One in six girls. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of the providers that we've worked with were serving, you know, young people as young as nine. Mm. Mm. So when you go state to state trying to get laws changed for the better. Um, You talked about that partial decriminalization is sort of the sweet spot that that we're trying to get to. Talk to me about the the resistance that you're met with and, you know, how educated lawmakers are (laughs) on this issue. What kind of resistance are you met with and what do lawmakers think they even know about this issue? (laughs) Well, you know, in some cases, there's resistance to even decriminalizing the women, right? You know, sometimes there's just straight ignorance and people are resistant to even decriminalize the sale of sex because they're concerned that'll drive up prostitution. They don't really understand that the legality is not a driver, right? That if it was legal, women aren't going to all of a sudden rush to become, you know, uh, prostituted women, right? That, that That's not what's deterring women <laughs> from becoming, um, you know, uh, prostitutes. That's not what it is. Um, but it, it takes, it's a learning curve. And so we have to explain, like, there's conditions and there's a lot of, um, you know, social conditions and structural reasons why that drive people into prostitution. And, you know, it's very important to understand that the criminalization is just an additional barrier. And it's really important that we, you know, support those individuals, decriminalize them, and actually that that arrest and that that criminal record impedes them from being able to get out, from being able to support their children, access housing, access other jobs, access, you know, uh, other educational opportunities. I've worked with survivors that have been, you know, by some miracle have been able to exit the industry, get their lives together and have kids and have a family. And, you know, they'll get pulled over and police officers will just 
you know, humiliate them because they still have that on their rap sheet. And so it's really important to be able to get those records expunged. Um, because if we're saying, you know, no one should be criminalized for these acts of survival, they should, they should have those records cleared truly. And so that is a big learning curve. So that is part of the resistance. Um, and then, you know, one of the other elements of these partial decriminalization models is, is these sliding scale fines for the sex buyers that are proportional to their income. So so it's a way to make it both equitable as well as a real deterrent. So, you know, a, a very wealthy person would have a much higher fine and penalty assessed with their, you know, act than someone from a much lower income bracket. So, you know, that makes it equitable and it makes it a real deterrent because, you know, someone from a much higher income bracket is not going to be deterred with a $200 ticket and a fine, right? But they might think twice if they get a $25,000 ticket. Um, so, it, you know, it just depends. Um, and each, you know, state has written them differently. You know, New York has a sliding scale fine on their pending bill right now. Um, and so that is something that I think some legislators have found very interesting. Um, again, New York, Massachusetts, and Maine have pending legislation right now. They've all introduced these uh, partial decriminalization bills right now. Um, and, you know, I think I think these are really promising paths forward. Um, but, you know, it, it has been a learning curve. And I think, you know, we've had some really great legislators who have listened to survivors in their jurisdictions, because really these have all been survivor-driven efforts. Um, you know, local survivors have really been courageous and stepping forward and saying it's time for change. And it's really important that we, you know, make this effort to change the status quo, but do so in a way that doesn't do more harm and that curbs um, the industry and reduces the number of people involved overall. Totally. I, do you have any states that are sort of the gold standard in this that have adopted good law that have listened to you that have sort of done, done a great job in this, in this area? So no one has adopted the legislation as of yet, um, but there are some states that have like implemented it in a, in a more policy way. So, you know, Seattle has basically um, stopped arresting and really reduced the arrests of prostituted women and children for the last several years. They institute a fine for sex buyers, um, a large portion of which goes to, to services. Um, and they also have this buyer accountability program. So sex buyers there are not only get fined, but they also have to go to this 10 week program that is co you know, facilitated by men. It's like a men's accountability group, but also survivors co lead the program. And it's not like some BS, you know, uh, traffic citation program, you know, where they go for an eight hour class and get their record wipe. It's 10 weeks. And they've had really good outcomes there where, you know, a lot of the buyers have come back and, you know, either taught courses or, you know, started their own men's groups and have found it's been really helpful to them. Yeah. I think, you know, we don't really talk about the harms of this toxic masculinity on men themselves and, you know, it's harmful to them too. So um, I think something like that can be really impactful. So they don't have the law per se, but they have kind of implemented it in their policies. And I think some other states are are looking at those types of approaches as well. That's fascinating. That's really cool. Who are the greatest adversaries of the work that you're doing? Who who is paying for 
the big lobbyists to to get on in there and try to shut all this down? What's the incentive for that? Who because it I always say on the show it comes back to power and money at the end of the day. Um, so who who are your adversaries? Well, it's funny, you know, it's it's who you would typically expect. Um last year in Oregon, it was funny, there was a admitted sex buyer. Um, named Aaron Boonshoft, who bankrolled a ballot initiative in Oregon to legalize the sex trade. Um, And a bunch of survivors there pulled together and they basically had a number of petitioners and they were able to file a legal challenge. And ultimately he withdrew the petition. But I mean, public, he was in the press, you know, put all this money into doing a ballot initiative. And he talked about- Yeah, he talked about how he felt like it. this should be legal. And he was like a proud sex buyer. And you look him up, he's like a multimillionaire white man, you know, just not embarrassed at all. And it's the profile, right? That's the profile of the typical sex buyer. If you go on our website, on our fact sheets, we have a racial disparities fact sheet that shows the vast majority of both child sex trafficking victims and adults in the sex trade are overwhelmingly women and girls of color while the majority of sex buyers are overwhelmingly white men of means. And so it's just very funny that he thought that that was a good look to just, you know, (laughs) legalize the purchase of, you know, black and brown and native women in the state of Oregon for his purchase for his, you know, profit and pleasure. Um, But, you know, there's, there's a couple of lobbying groups and advocacy groups um, that are also pushing like in the, on the East coast, there's a group called decriminalized sex work. They go by DSW. They're doing a lot of advocacy. They have a couple of different, you know, entities. They've, there was a Boston globe article talking about like the amount of money they'd put into politics on the East coast. Um, They're active in New York and Vermont and Rhode Island um, have you seen this become a political issue? Because I feel like every oh, issue sure. these days gets totally skewed into being about, you know, partisan agendas. How is oh, yeah. this translate in that way? Well, I mean, if you talk to any of our you know, colleagues in New York, they'll tell you, I mean, it's become such a hot button issue because progressive legislators almost have to endorse full decriminalization to even get an endorsement from like DSA, like the Democratic Socialists of America. I mean, it's like, it's, it's polarizing. It's a polarizing issue. It's seen as like a progressive issue. And and it makes you think like, do people not realize what it actually entails? Because all you have to do is pull up some of these buyer quotes. um, And they're deeply racist, deeply misogynist. And it's shocking to me that any legislator would want to be associated with those quotes. So it's shocking that this is being dubbed as progressive in any way, shape or form. Um, So it's fascinating. One of our uh, colleagues at the coalition against trafficking and women did a fascinating report. Uh, They're based in New York. So they just did a New York state um, buyer report and they just pulled quotes from sex buyers from these review boards and said, you know, why do these guys get a pass? We are, in 2023, we have denounced racism, misogyny, you know, objectification, all of these things that we have said in in society are unacceptable. Why do these guys get a pass? And, you know, I just think it's fascinating. I think, frankly, these these legislators who are supporting these bills to decriminalize and condone these buyers behavior should really answer for it, because, frankly, some of these quotes are unbelievable unbelievable 
Yeah. And that's what's so similar about the work that you and I are both doing, you know, having laws changed to protect children abused sexually, um, giving adults who were abused as kids a chance to file lawsuits. What does that do? That takes the pedophile out of society and makes them a defendant. And yet we face enormous pushback um, on my issue. It's from conservatives who want to protect the Catholic church and don't, and don't want to open, open those floodgates. And I always say, I don't give a shit where your politics lie, but when we're talking about kids and marginalized youth and marginalized adults, there's one right side of history and you're not on it. You know, absolutely. Absolutely. And when you talk to these kids too, you know, um, it's it's shocking, you know, when, when we were in D.C. and this, bill, you know, a full decriminalization bill came to D.C. in 2019 and we had a number of these young survivors. We ended up working with a local organization to organize these closed door listening sessions with the local legislators who were many of whom were supporting this bill. And so they could hear from these youth directly about, you know, what the impact would be. Uh, they didn't understand why you know, decriminalizing informal brothels would be harmful to these youth. So, you know, one of the arguments that the proponents of the legislation would make is, well, you know, we need to decriminalize these residential brothels. So, you know, these sex workers, quote unquote, can work together for safety and they can all work out of an apartment together. You know, again, very kind of naive and thinking that once you pass this legislation, they would actually be able to do that. You know, what we know from places like New Zealand that adopted full decriminalization is that oftentimes like organized criminals come in and buy up like blocks and blocks of these apartments and you still have to rent from them. You know, it's still, it's not going to remain a cottage industry. Let's put it like that. Right. It, it, you still are going to be, you know, um, dominated by exploitative forces. And, you know, what we, what we know those entities to be in what we colloquially call them are trap houses. And a lot of child sex trafficking victims are found in these trap houses and that's how they're identified. And so this one 12 year old girl, after we're explaining the bill and, you know, the, the service providers asked us to explain the bill in terms the young people would understand and answer their questions. This one 12 year old girl came up to us afterwards and said, does this mean that next time I'm in an apartment, no one will come find me? And, you know, the service provider explained to me afterwards that she was found completely naked in an apartment in one of those trap houses with adult men, none of whom were arrested. And she was taken into like, you know, child protective services. Um, But she was that she was totally traumatized. She was like, does this mean that no one will find me next time? And the reality is it could very well mean that. Because what we have found from places like New Zealand, the law enforcement there from the Ministry of Justice report have said law enforcement now lack probable cause to enter these suspected sites of child exploitation because it's legal. And a lot of people don't know, but Rhode Island experimented with full decriminalization of indoor prostitution for a 29-year period. It was, you know, between 1980 and 2009. And at the time, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, the, the president, Ernie Allen, at the time wrote a letter to the governor of Rhode Island and said, you are the only state that cannot meaningfully participate in Operation Cross Country, which is their national child sex sting, like that recovery operation they do across all those states, because your laws do not allow law enforcement to be able to 
go in and recover children from these suspected sites of child exploitation. So it was a problem then too. And we know from Rhode Island, they had increased child exploitation, increased organized criminal activity, increased gender-based violence. It was that time period where the Craigslist killer, that serial killer was happening too. And he was targeting people in prostitution. So it's like, we have the evidence. Um, New Zealand is often what, you know, proponents lift up as the beacon of full decriminalization. And we have the State Department. Um, Every year they do an annual trafficking in persons report. It's called the annual tip report. And they rank all the countries of the world according to how well they're implementing trafficking policies. And they have a tier ranking scale. And they, the last two years, they have lowered the tier ranking of New Zealand under the Biden administration. They've dropped them to tier two. And they've said New Zealand does not meet their minimum requirements. And that is because they said in the last year, they have not initiated or prosecuted a single sex trafficker, and they have not even identified a single sex trafficking victim. And that's because they basically removed the entire legal apparatus to do so. If you remove all those laws, you can't, not only can you not prosecute traffickers, you cannot identify victims. And I don't know, it's like, how many more ways can people show you that you are trying to implement a failed policy? Yeah. So it's it's just very concerning. And again, there's a lot of money and, you know, social media capital, just like promoting these sex work is work and it's empowering and all of these very provocative talking points and mantras, but none of that means it's successful or helpful or positive. And the reality is when you talk to people who have experienced the sex trade and who have exited the sex trade, they are very clear about how harmful it is because ultimately nothing can make the experience of unwanted sex not traumatic. You know what I mean? And that I think is the most important takeaway that the exchange of sex doesn't make the act desired. Mm -hmm. And ultimately that's what the trauma is. So even Mm -hmm. if, you know, it's you're engaging in it one time or two times or whatever, undesired sex is traumatic. It doesn't matter how many times or how many years. And I think that's what people need to realize. Like you don't want to have sex with your own partner that you love 10 times a day. What makes people think that it's okay and healthy Mm -hmm. to engage in a sex acts with complete strangers 10, 15 times a day, several days, you know, and what makes people think it's okay to condemn other people to that behavior and Mm -hmm. other people's children to that behavior. So I think, you know, it's really important to think about this realistically and not theoretically because I think when we talk about this theoretically, you can be like, be more sex positive and mm-hmm. empower you know, women. Stick. Exactly. Yeah. But when you talk about it for what it actually is and what prostitution actually is, it really changes your perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that like this isn't just happening in certain communities anymore with the invention of the internet, right? With the invention of Instagram and, you know, Twitter and, and now TikTok and all these things, this could be happening, listeners, in your backyard. It could be happening online with your neighbor's teenager. It could be, I mean, it's it's 
it's everywhere. No community, I don't think, um, is not being touched by this. Um, And so that's another thing when we think about it, theoretically, we're thinking, oh, that stuff happens somewhere else. No, it happens in your community, no matter who you are, what your status is, where your kid goes to school, it's still happening. Newsflash. For sure. We do judicial trainings. And we were doing a judicial training. And and I will tell you that the next time around we did it, we had a judge come back and he said that his daughter, he realized after going through our judicial training that his daughter had been trafficked. Yeah. And he didn't realize until going through our judicial training that his own daughter in California had been targeted. And he basically was like, I realized afterwards my daughter, it was like um, she had been basically recruited. It was like a modeling thing. And that she basically responded and it one thing led to another and his own daughter and he would have never thought never thought in a million years his daughter would be a victim of child sex trafficking yeah so yes so what can we do what can my listeners do they're you know sitting there listening to this they feel like their stomach's in their throat right now like i do (laughs) i want to strangle some lawmakers um what can we do how can we help you Well, I think just being, you know, following these policies, getting more educated um, at your local and state level, seeing if these are coming up. I mean, I think a lot of times we just assume that this is, you know, the progressive stance. And and I think, you know, again, we're a very, you know, we're a nonpartisan organization, but certainly we work on very progressive issues. You know, we, we take we come to this issue of partial decriminalization from a racial justice and criminal justice reform. Um, you know, I welcome you to go on our website, rightsforgirls.org. We do a lot of justice reform work. You know, we do a lot of work to what we call, you know, dismantling the abuse to prison pipeline. Most of my work has really centered around um, writing and publishing around the unjust criminalization of survivors of gender-based violence. So that's how I come to this work. Um, this is not a moralistic position. This is not, uh, you know, coming from any type of judgment. It's really just from the work we've done with hundreds of survivors over the years that have informed our work and, you know, really want to protect against expanding a harmful and dangerous and racist industry um, from doing more harm. Uh, so I think just, you know, following the policies, making sure if, if a bill like this is coming to your state or jurisdiction, that you are informed that, you know, you are if if others are not reading the bill, that you are reading the bill. Uh, obviously, states do not call it pimping in many states and jurisdictions. It's called procurement or, you know, pandering or, um, you know, there's different terms for it. But often it is, you know, profiting off the exploitation of someone else, third party facilitation. And so when you look at the legislation, um, oftentimes it'll be clear that that is what is being repealed Um, in in Oregon uh, and uh, Vermont, for example. I just returned from Vermont. It took a lot of convincing. We had to sit with even some of the co-sponsors of the legislation and say, look, you're repealing Three different pimping statutes, unlawful procurement, slave traffic, levying off the earnings of a prostitute. Those three sections are being repealed. And we had to sit down and show even some of the co-sponsors that those were being repealed. They didn't realize, you know, they just thought that they were supporting, you know, sex workers. And so, again, reading the legislation, don't always trust that your legislators are reading the legislation. A lot of these are citizens' legislatures. 
they are working part-time, you know, uh, and just making sure that we're informed. And, you know, one of the things that we always say at Rights for Girls is that we center the most marginalized in our policies. Um, mm -hmm. We believe in centering um, the most vulnerable because when policies are crafted to meet their needs, it follows that everyone else's needs in society are met. We don't create policy for the privileged few, we create policy for the most marginalized. And that way we can ensure that everyone else's needs in society will be met. And so that is how we always uh, do our advocacy. That's incredible. You guys, not all superheroes wear capes. And this woman is an example of that. Yasmin Vafa, you're incredible. We're going to bring you back for a part two to talk about some of the other stuff you work on. You're absolutely incredible. Thank you for doing the work that we do as a mother of two girls, especially. Um, we are have learned so much today and we can't wait to bring you back. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You guys, www.writesthenumber4girls.org. We will see you next time here on Bar Fights. Thank you for listening to Bar Fights with attorney Sarah Klein, taking on issues that matter. Please check out our website at barfightspodcast.com, Instagram at barfightspodcast, or Twitter at barfights underscore pod for the latest show updates and archives.